0: It's a privilege for me to be back in Scotland, and this morning I would like to direct your attention to Matthew 27, 27 to 50. Matthew 27, 27 to 50. Though the passage is widely known, I'm going to take the time to read the whole. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27 page 999 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus has just been condemned to death and flogged, which was part of the procedure heading toward crucifixion. We pick up the narrative. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Oh, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. 3,000 years ago, there was a very remarkable king. An excellent administrator. He united his tribes. He imposed justice in the land. Secured the borders. Was a man of considerable principle. A poet, as well as a warrior. Gifted. Unfortunately, well into his middle age, he seduced a young woman next door and made her pregnant. And then because it was, in fact, her husband who was amongst the soldiers on the king's front, he arranged to have the young man killed so that um, his adultery would not be discovered. He thought he had got away with it. But then he was confronted by the court prophet, a man by the name of Nathan. Nathan, though he was genuinely a prophet, knew that you had to be politically careful when you approached a king. After all, this was not a constitutional monarch. He had power of life and death. So he approached him with a story made up. Your Majesty, um, it's come to my attention that up country there are. There are two farmers, uh, a case of terrible injustice. One is filthy rich. Cows and uh, sheep everywhere, fabulous wealth. And next door, a dirt farmer, one poor little lamb. Well, he had a little lamb. Some people came by and visited the filthy rich farmer, and instead of doing the hospitable thing and slaughtering his own calf, he swiped this poor dirt farmer's sole little lamb. Well, David is outraged. How dare he? This, this will not stand. There must be justice in the land. How could he? Tell me about this. I will set it to rights. But Nathan knows. And the writer knows. And God knows. And the reader knows that David's words are steeped in irony. We all know what irony is. Some of it is funny, some of it's vicious. But at its best, it enables readers to see what's going beyond the text, behind the text, when people in the text don't see themselves what's going on. In that sense, irony enables you to see most clearly the significance of events as they unfold. In the New Testament, the two writers that are most given to irony are Matthew and John. The truth of the matter is, we sometimes become so superficially familiar with the text that we don't see the irony anymore. The words play out. We are familiar with them. But here, in this passage that I just read, Matthew lays out the ironies of the cross. And if we see them afresh we will see most clearly what the cross itself is about. We need to remind ourselves of the context. By this point, Jesus is about 33 years of age. He's been in the public eye for two or three years. These were years of great public ministry, but now he has fallen afoul of the religious, political, and uh, civil authorities. They are resentful of his popularity, they fear his power, they are suspicious of his motives, and they think that the rising numbers of people who are following him could constitute eventually a revolt that would bring down the Roman troops, that there is only one end to that. So they think he must be crushed. They provide a kangaroo court and they condemn Jesus and manage to secure the sanction of the Roman governor to have Jesus executed by crucifixion. It was politically expedient. It was religiously for the best. They were convinced. And then here in the text, we pick up the account right after sentence has been passed. In those days, in a land like this, which had capital punishment, there was no long system of appeals that could go on for years. Once sentence was passed, then you were taken out and executed. And that brings us now to the four profound ironies. Number one, the man who is mocked as king is the king. Now, once sentence was passed, it was common to get beaten up. In fact, you were beaten up as part of the inquiry. They thought that uh, they would get your attention a little better and you would be more likely to tell the truth if they flogged you thoroughly as part of the question and answer time before sentence was passed. So, Jesus has been beaten at least twice, severely. But what takes place in these next verses is not part of the normal practice of crucifixion. This is just barracks room humor. The governor's soldiers take Jesus into the praetorium and they take off his own clothes and put some sort of scarlet hood on him as if it's a, an imperial robe. And then they put a stick in his hand as if it's a scepter. And then they wind the, the, the great thorn vines of the Middle East, spikes about this line along. They wind it together and ram it down on his head as if it's a crown. And as the blood is dripping down his face, they take the staff and bash him against the head again and again. And then they laugh. Hey, oh, King of the Jews, your majesty! Ha ha ha! The King of the Jews. Barracks room humor. But Matthew knows, and the readers know, and God knows that Jesus is the King. How does the book begin? The origins of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then the genealogy unfolds and it's constructed somewhat artificially so that you see that the central 14 are the years of the great Davidic dynasty. And anybody with a scrap of knowledge of the Old Testament understands that there had been growing, multiplying promises about the coming of the great king, David's greater son. Do we not recite some of these words from the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ, every Christmas? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He shall sit on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his kingdom there will be no end. But it is also said of him, He shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Jews had gone into captivity. Eventually, they had come back, then under the Persians. The Persian authorities had given way to the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then that had broken up. And, and the empire was divided into four territories, ruled by various generals who scrapped among themselves. And, and little Israel was squashed between two of these competing generals. Eventually, there was bloody mayhem in, in what generated, eventually, the Feast of Hanukkah. There was a great civil contest against the Syrians. The Maccabean Revolt. The Syrian governor, the Syrian king, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he decided that he would paganize the Jews once and for all. He made it a capital offense to have a Bible. He made it a capital offense to serve in any priestly capacity. He made it a capital offense to observe the Sabbath. And then he sacrificed pigs in the temple. There was slaughter everywhere. Up on the hillside of Judea, some soldiers came up insisting on removing all Bibles from the area. And an old priest by the name of Mattathias slew one of the emissaries of the Syrian king. His son, Judas, started a guerrilla movement. He came to be called Judas the Hammer. Maccabeus is how you say the hammer in Greek, in, in, in Aramaic. And as, as a result, this whole movement came to be called the Maccabean Revolt. For three and a half years, there was mayhem. And at the end of that time, in 164 B.C., for the first time in 500 years, Israel was free to set up its own government again. For 500 years, that right had been denied them. So what did they do? Look around for the appropriate successor to David? Nope. The guerrilla leaders themselves took over. They weren't really all that interested in following the law of God. They weren't interested in re-establishing the Davidic monarchy. A century later, Rome took over under Pompeii. And half a century after that, they have Herod as the local monarch and Jesus is born. And still, no king of the Jews. And now Jesus has appeared. And throughout the gospel there, he tells parables in which... Transparently, he is the king. At the trial, the question of whether or not he is the king is, is, is central. Chapter 27, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you some sort of political threat that could jeopardize the, the, the absoluteness of Caesar's rule? Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. That is, I am the king of the Jews. And yet, he doesn't act like a king. He has no troops. He, he, he is not uh, advocating the overthrow of the government. He, he's a king with a strange notion of kingdom. And, and Pilate understands this. He's uncomfortable and tries to get out of condemning him. The fact of the matter is, in the New Testament, more broadly, we discover that he's the king, all right. Not only the king, the son of David, but he's God's own agent in creation. One day, every knee will bow before Him, including these soldiers who are flogging Him and laughing. He is the King. What does Jesus say at the very end of this book? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Oh, He's the King, all right. And every knee will bow. Matthew knows that. And God knows it. And the readers know it. Do you know it? Indeed, this strange kingdom has surfaced repeatedly in the book. You you see, when we think of a kingdom today, inevitably we think in terms of constitutional monarchy. But if you want a closer notion of, of an absolute monarchy, you should be meditating on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, perhaps. Closer to absolute power. They had no notion of a constitutional monarchy. So when Jesus is king, he's supposed to be absolute. If he really is king, he's supposed to reign. But he doesn't sound like a king, does he? Do you recall the great scene in Matthew chapter 20? Verse 20 the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down. She asked him a favor. What is it you want? He asked. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Yes, she had a traditional notion of kingdom. And she wanted her two sons to have the positions of power closest to the throne, do you see? You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? That is, participate in in my destiny, in my fate? And he's thinking of the cross. We can, they answered, having no idea at all what they're talking about. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. They will bear their own suffering. After all, one of them will become the first apostolic martyr. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father." When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why the first three centuries of Christians spoke with profound irony of Jesus reigning from the cross. How do you reign from a cross? And here Jesus insists in Matthew 20 that there is a sense in which all leadership in the church likewise is to be a form of self-sacrificial service. Never condescension, never mere power. Although Jesus' authority is supreme, even as his suffering is supreme. So here's the first irony. The man mocked as king is king. Which brings us to the second. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. We look now at verses 32 to 40. I don't have time to go through these verses in detail, but, but remind yourself of what takes place. In those days, when you were taken out to be crucified, the uprights of the crosses were already in place, at the public place of crucifixion, always at a crossroads or in a public area. It was supposed to be a death of great shame. The Romans had three ways of executing you. This was the one that was connected with shame. Crucifixion was, in the public mind, a horrible thing. It was not to be talked about. You read the ancient sources and they will tell parents, don't, don't talk about crucifixion with your children. It's just too gross. You were stripped absolutely naked. No polite little loincloths. No halos around. And you hung there. You, 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 just, you just hung there, laughed at by passers-by. And you would pull with your arms and push with your knees to open up your chest cavity so that you could breathe. And then the muscle spasms would start and you would collapse. Then you'd pull with your arms and push with your legs so you could breathe. and, And then the spasms would return and you'd collapse. That could go on for hours, in some cases for days. It was considered not only justice, but public shaming of slaves and rebels and Anarchists. No Roman citizen could ever be executed by crucifixion without the written sanction of the emperor himself. And then after sentence was passed, you see, then, although the upright was there, the crucified person was supposed to put the cross member on his shoulder and take it out to the place of crucifixion. It was called taking up your cross. Nowadays, of course, we have a rather domesticated cross. We have crosses on many of our buildings. Our bishops wear them around our necks. We dangle them from our ears. Nobody's shocked. But in the ancient world, the the cross was not a talisman, a little charm, a gold brooch, something on your lapel. It was appalling. Now Jesus is so weak, he can't even carry his cross, his piece of wood, out to the place of execution. That's what we're told. That's how powerless he is. So they have to conscript some passerby to carry the wood for him. And then when they get there, they strip him. So he's got nothing. When you are carrying your cross, there is no hope for you. There is no further appeal. There is no further court. There is no one that can stand in. You are heading out to public shame and to final execution and to death. Then they crucified him and They laughed at him. And then do you hear the final scorn? Verses 39 and 40 in this section. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Now, once again, it is important to remember the context. This too was something that had been brought up At Jesus' trial, in chapter 26, we are told that some came bearing this charge. Verse 59, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put Him to death, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, why is that so serious? Well, the Roman Empire was an astonishingly pluralistic place. Many different religions, many different tribes, many different languages. One of the devices that the Empire used to put down any possibility of revolt was to make any desecration of any temple a capital offense. Didn't matter which temple. You desecrate a temple, you die under Roman law. And, and so somebody had heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Well, maybe he didn't actually destroy a temple, but if he was advocating it, then, then, then surely this is advocating something that is a capital offense. Now, it turned out that the stories couldn't quite come together and that wasn't the charge they finally got him on. They finally got him on sedition, claiming to be king. But, but that was why this was brought up, you see. On the face of it, it seems a bit ludicrous, doesn't it? Destroy a temple and in three days I'll raise it up? In North America, (coughs) I was born in Canada, we build a lot of houses that are timber frame. And um, provided you have the basement in first, Habitat for Humanity or some other group can... Can go in and put up a frame house pretty close to a day. Might need a bit of finishing afterwards, but it's remarkable with a whole lot of uh, a prefab and a, a decent team and a hoist and a lot of power tools. You, you can put up a house in a day. Even even when I was a young man, putting up jiprock rock and so on was a long, long job. Nowadays, I can jib rock a house in day. These power Screwdrivers with long strips of screws right in them. You put up one of those sheets properly cut with a, with a knife and zzz, 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 they just go up so fast. But you know, they didn't have any power tools in Jesus' day. And they built the temple out of stone. And they weren't even allowed to cut the stone within the temple precinct. You weren't supposed to hear the sound of a hammer. It all had to be cut somewhere else and then brought in without hydraulics. It's like the great cathedrals of Europe. In the case of the great cathedrals, in no instance did the original architect ever see the finished product. It just took more than one life to build. And now Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. What does he mean by that? Well, the fact of the matter is that nowhere in Matthew's gospel is that unpacked for us in detail. But it is unpacked for us in John's gospel. In John's Gospel, Jesus said exactly these words pretty early on in his ministry. In fact, that might be why the people at the trial didn't get their stories quite straight. It was so early in the ministry, it was so long ago, that that people couldn't remember exactly how it went and and couldn't get their stories straight. But if you read the account in John chapter 2, you discover that Jesus was talking about his body. Now, when he said these words, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again, his opponents didn't have a clue what he meant. John says that the disciples didn't have a clue what he meant. Not a clue. I mean, destroy this temple in three days, they'll raise it again. Boy, that's a lot of brickwork, a lot of masonry. What does that mean? Oh, it's deep. Jesus is always saying deep things. It's deep. But John comments after Jesus was raised from the dead, then they remembered his words and they believed the scripture. Because, you see, the temple was the great meeting place between God and human beings. This was the place of sacrifice. This is the place where blood was was spilt for the forgiveness of sins, so for Jesus to claim to be the temple and then to be destroyed and to rise it, to rise again the third day, he was claiming in effect now in some sense, to be the heir and successor to the temple, the great meeting place between God and human beings, the place of sacrifice, the place where sin is dealt with, the unique place where Fallen, broken, rebellious human beings meet God. The temple. So you see, while these people are sneering at him, because he's so weak, yet he had claims to be able to do so much, to build a temple again by himself. In fact, Matthew knows, and God knows, and the readers know, that it is precisely by being weak, it is precisely by going to the cross, it is precisely by being crushed for three days and rising again that He becomes the temple. It is precisely by this magnificent display of powerlessness that the ground is set for the resurrection and He rises again to be the temple, the great meeting place between God and human beings. And that too, brothers and sisters in Christ, that too in Matthew's gospel has been worked out in terms of Christian ethics. When Jesus first starts explaining clearly in Matthew 16 to his followers that, yes, he is the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah they expect. The Messiah who is actually going to go to the cross, they don't have categories for it. Peter actually takes him aside, Matthew 16:22, and says, Never, Lord, not going to the cross. No, 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 no. Great David's greater son doesn't go to the cross. Let me explain a few things to you, Lord. In fact, there's actually irony in the way he addresses Jesus. How do you go to Jesus and say, Never, Lord? I mean, if you say, Lord, why do you say, Never? I mean, don't you have to say, Never, you stupid twit? Or, Yes, sir, Lord, but never, Lord? How do you do that? Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he explains, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now today, when we speak of taking up our cross, and and we have these little sayings, you know, we all have our cross to bear. We apply them to the most amazing things, don't we? You've got a really bad toothache. Well, we all have our cross to bear. Some really unpleasant in law. Well, we all have our cross to bear. Some nasty little kid who just won't learn no. Well, we all have our cross to bear. <laughs> but in the first century, nobody joked like that. Because when you took up your cross, when you bore your cross in the first century, you were going out to die. And yet, Jesus has the cheek to address his disciples and say, you can't be my disciple unless you bear your cross. In fact, he says elsewhere, unless you pick up your cross daily. I mean, being crucified once would be bad enough, but daily crucifixion? As a condition for being a follower of Jesus, it's a bit much. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Because for most of us, we take up our cross at best in the metaphorical sense. We learn to die to self-interest. The way the one who literally picks up a cross and is going to the cross really is dying to self, whether he or she likes it or not. So, we, we resolve to die to self-interest and confess Jesus is Lord because we follow a Lord who died, quite literally, to all self-interest, for our interest. So here's the second irony. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. Indeed, it is precisely in the context of his powerlessness that he becomes the powerful temple of God by which human beings are reconciled to God. Third, the man who can't save himself... Saves others. Here's more sneering condescension. 41, 42. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. This king theme keeps recurring. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. (coughs) They think they're being ironic when they say this. (laughs) He saved everybody else and he can't save himself. (laughs) They think this is deep, deep irony. There's a much deeper irony. When I was a boy, I had an even more perverse imagination than I have now. I, I used to like reading through stories or thinking about stories to a certain point in the story and then change some details in my imagination and try to figure out where the story would go once the details had changed. Now, you've got to be really perverse to think like that, but what can I say? It's the way I thought. And of the biblical stories, this one interested me a great deal. I I thought about this one again and again and again. Come down from the cross now, and we'll believe. So Jesus came down. Now what happens? Where does the story go now? Do they believe? Well, in some sense, it would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? I mean, in some sense, they'd believe. But would they believe in him as the one who dies on the cross to take away their sins? Back up a minute. What does it mean to say he saved others? Himself, he cannot save. You see, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we use words like save. And, and, and we have some sort of consensus amongst us about what a word like that means. But go to the streets of Edinburgh and ask somebody just passing by. And unless he or she is a Christian, what, what will such a person say when, when you ask the question, what does the verb to save mean? Well, I guarantee you'll get one of two or three responses. Save is is what you better do if you want to um, retire well. Um, Here's a credit union. There's a bank. That's the one where I save or try to. (laughs) And for the computer geek, save is that which you jolly well better do unless you want to lose a lot of data. Most of us who have been brought up in computers have had at least two or three experiences of major crashes where we weren't careful enough. So we know how important it is to save. And then, of course, if you're a, a football hunk, you know what save means. This is the sort of thing that, that athletes do. If they're goalies, if they're defenders, they, they make saves, don't they? But what does Matthew mean? Well, He's told us. Go back to chapter 1 again. How has Jesus been introduced? Before you read chapter 27, you're supposed to read chapters 1 to 26. Already in chapter 1, Jesus has had His name explained. Joseph is told, you will call the baby's name Jesus, which is simply a Greek form of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. You will call His name Yahweh saves, because He will save His people from their sins. That's put in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, so that when you read all of Matthew's gospel, you are to read it as the gospel of the one who comes to save His people from their sins. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount for example with all that wonderful teaching that is part and parcel of the package of what Jesus has come to do. To show people how to live under the announced kingdom because he came to save his people from their sins. And when you read chapters 8 and 9 with the the great miracles that are being performed and death being overturned well this is part and parcel of saving his people from their sins because all of the implications of sin including the curses of of a broken world and death itself are all to be overturned come by the One who saves His people from their sins. And then you get to chapter 10, great mission chapter, where you start training the apostles to, to reach others with the Gospel. Well, He trains others because He came to save His people from their sins. This becomes the precursor to the great mission endeavor with which the book ends. All the way through until you finally come to the great passion of the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection again. Why? Why is it all there? Because He came to save His people from their sins. He saved others. Himself He cannot save. But Matthew knows and God knows and the readers know that in the deepest sense that is exactly the truth. Because you see, if He had stepped down and saved Himself, then He couldn't have saved me. It was only by not saving himself that he died the sinner's death to save sinners like me. These people in all of their sneering condescension spoke much better than they knew. He saved others. Himself he could not save. Do you know one of the reasons why we don't see that sort of irony so clearly today? Because we live in a society, we live at a time in Western culture when there is a huge amount of, I don't know what else to call it, but me firstism. Me firstism. Everyone helps himself, herself, let the devil take the hindmost. Did you see the film Titanic when it came out about a dozen years ago? Did you go and see it? Did you notice that um, when the great ship starts going down, according to this film version, there is a beeline for the lifeboats, not least by a lot of the fat cats that are on board. Historically, of course, there was a great number of very, very wealthy people. The equivalent of the Forbes 400 richest people in the world were on the Titanic. And, 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 and they, they did not make a rush for the boats. In the film version, they all made a rush for the boats. And these, soldiers, these sailors then, in the film version, take out their pistols and fire them in the air in order to keep the crowds back so that the, the boats could be reserved for the, the, the children and the women. But historically, that's not what happened. John Jacob Astor was there, the richest man in the world. The Bill Gates of uh, 1912. He dragged his wife to the boat, shoved her on board, and was backing away when someone said, Sir, you should get on board too. No, this is for women and children. And John Jacob Astor drowned. Guggenheim was there. He was ripped apart from his wife in the scramble for the boat. He saw another woman heading for the boat and he yelled, Tell her I love you and that Guggenheim knows his duty. Tell her that I love her and that Guggenheim knows his duty, and he drowned. There is simply no report of a mad scramble for the boats by all those fat cats who were on board the Titanic. So the question becomes this. Why did the producer and the director change the historical account to make it come out this way? I mean, anybody who knows anything about Britain knows that British sailors don't have sidearms firing them off in the air in any case. The policemen don't normally, let alone sailors. I mean, it's so historically ridiculous, it's laughable. But quite apart from that, why did the American producer feel that he needed to change the story? One of the reviewers, the reviewer in the New York Times, answered the question. He said, because... If today they had told the truth, no one would have believed it. In other words, that sort of courtesy, death to self, being prepared to drown, others go first, just sounds so artificial to us at the beginning of the 21st century. The notion of moral reformation, moral constraint, moral direction from inside just sounds odd. It's sort of back then. Trailing edge after the Victorian period. But it's not how real people live, is it? But it's how Jesus lived and died. He chose not to save himself so that he might save others. And there is a profound sense in which that is the nature of becoming a Christian. He so saves us that he forgives us our sins, we learn to take up our cross and advance the interests of others. That's why Christians are to be known by their love. A loveless Christian is a contradiction in terms. A self-promoting Christian is a contradiction in terms. It's at best a horribly disfigured, a contradicted Christian. But, but a Christian follows Christ. That means serving others. Death to self-interest for the sake of others. The joy of following Jesus in this regard. Do you see? Because we have been transformed from by, uh, on the inside. That is what new birth is all about. We, we are actually transformed people. We're not just forgiven people. We're changed from the inside. So that there is an inner motivation that transforms everything. And all of the, the power assessments change. All of our perceptions on what's important change. For we follow the Lord Jesus He died and could not save himself precisely because he saved sinners like me. And finally, the man who cries out in despair trusts God. Here it is again, verse 43. Sneering condescension and they think that they are being clever and they think that they are speaking with irony. He trusts in God, they say. Let God rescue him now if he wants. him. for he said, I am the Son of God. Then from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So does Jesus trust God or does he not? He trusts in God, they sneered. And now he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe they're right. Indeed, if you read many contemporary commentaries on on this passage, the the chief lesson that is learned by many commentators from this cry of the Lord Jesus is that if you push anybody long enough, even Jesus himself, he will be so down in the dumps, so forlorn, so despairing, that, that he will finally charge God with abandoning him. His faith in God will be crushed. He will not trust God. And if that can happen to Jesus, well, don't feel too bad if it happens to you and me. We're not Jesus. That's the moral lesson that's to be learned, we're told. But don't you see? All through, these people think that they are making profound remarks and with sneering irony are are laughing at him. But in every case, what they have said is the truth in some way that they don't really quite understand. Matthew knows. And God knows. And the readers know that Jesus does trust His Father and that's why He's there and crying like this. It should be obvious, even from the fact, that Jesus is actually quoting the words of David from Psalm 22. There, the psalm begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of the psalm, David is clearly trusting his Father. You see, trust in God is, is not necessarily incompatible with crying out to God in despair. The wrong set of categories. It was the wrong set of categories for David. It's the wrong set of categories here. That's not what's going on at all. And after all, Jesus understands from very early on in his ministry that he's going to the cross. When the devil in Matthew chapter 4 tries to offer him the the kingdoms of this world without the cross, Jesus rejects the whole scenario. And and when Peter tries to say, no, no, you don't go to the cross, you're the king. With your ability to walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead and do miracles and feed anybody that needs to be fed, you can be king without the cross, thank you very much. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you don't understand the things of God. Five times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus predicts that he's going to the cross. And then in Gethsemane, he agonizes over the same thing, does he not? Not as I will, but as you will. Oh, Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows it's the Father's will. He's not confused about that. It's not as if he gets to the cross and says, Oops, I miscalculated. Can we do this one again? He knows exactly what he's there for. It is precisely his trust in God that has brought him to the cross. But in hanging on the cross, despairing bleakly, The symbolism of the hour breaks out publicly. Darkness comes over all the land. We're told elsewhere that the temple veil was rent in twain. It's as if God shuts His face against all of this hideous, barbaric guilt. Jesus cries alone as He bears our sin in His own body on the tree. One of the most moving explanations of this verse I have re- ever read is in a four-line couplet in a three-page poem by Browning. Browning wrote a poem called On Cooper's Grave. Cooper, the reference to Cooper, spelt Cowper, is the William Cooper who wrote so many hymns was connected with John Newton and Alney, produced the Alney hymns almost three centuries ago. Newton was a converted slave trader and uh, Cooper, for his part, was a brilliant scholar, wrote learned essays that were read at Oxford and Cambridge, was a literary critic. He was also a hymn writer, a very gifted man. What some don't know is that he suffered from massive depression at a time when there really were very few drugs or sophisticated help around. He spent four long periods in an insane asylum that was Pretty miserable, even by today's standards. And for much of the time when he was out, he was looked after by a Christian woman who just nurtured him and cared for him. Cooper, in other words, faced the most amazingly bleak periods of suicidal despair. He could not find it easy to believe that God loved him. And in the poem, On Cooper's Grave, Browning reflects on Cooper's life. and For three pages, describes his, his gifts, his poetical skills, his literary prowess, his, his uh, ability as a literary critic read in the great universities. And then toward the end, she describes his uh, Christian faith, his, his commitment to Christ, these cycles of despair that she refers to obliquely in the poem. And then she picks up her pen and she writes, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, this universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the Holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost no son should use this cry of desolation. Do you hear what Browning is saying? Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that for all eternity, Cooper would not have to. That of the lost, no son should use this cry of desolation. For you see, the man who cries out in despair trusts God and brings all of God's purposes to pass in redeeming a fallen, broken, guilty people. If you are amongst those today who sometimes suffer with enormous self-loathing, wrestling, despair, let me tell you, Jesus cried this ahead of you, for you, so that for all eternity you would not have to despair. He so trusted his Father's will that he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. To trust Christ is is to abandon self-confidence forever and to trust rather the one whose sufferings make our access to God forever determined. Here they are then, the four great ironies of the cross. They tell us what to believe, They impel us to worship and to reverent bowing of the knee before Him. Number one. On that wretched day, the soldiers mocked Him. Raucous laughter in a barracks room. Hail the King! They sneered while spitting on Him. Brutal beatings on this day of doom. Though His crown was thorn, He was born a King. Holy brilliance bathed in bleeding loss. All the soldiers blind to this stunning theme Jesus reigning from a bloody cross. Number two. Awful weakness marks the battered God-man. Far too broken now to hoist the beam. Soldiers strip him bare and pound the nails in. Watch him hanging on the cruel tree. God's own temple's down. He has been destroyed. Death's remains are laid in rock and sod but the temple rises in God's wise ploy. Our great temple is the Son of God. Number three. Here's the one who said he cares for others. One who said he came to save the lost. How can we believe he'll save another when he can't get off that blood-stained cross? Let him save himself. Let him come down now. Savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others as the king of grace. And finally, draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone. Dejected. Weeps the bitterest tears instead of me. All the mockers cry. He has lost his trust. He's defeated by hypocrisy. But with faith's resolve, Jesus knows he must do God's will and swallow death for me.